Missed the show, no problems, on point and on the podcast. Prime Minister was apparently the last to know about sexual misconduct allegations against retired General Vance, despite the fact that his own minister and those in his office were told back in 2018, and then they extended his contract Anyway, the Kielberger brothers say, yeah, uh, thanks, but no thanks to testifying at yet another committee, even if subpoenaed. Like, it's almost like they have something to hide. I just like to know where they think they get off. And the Trudeau government says canceling Enbridge Line 5 is a non-starter, and they're set to go to battle with Michigan's governor over this essential pipeline. But what powers do we have to stop them? Let's get talking. I only became aware of specific allegations against General Vance uh, through the work done by uh, global investigative reporters uh, over the past weeks and months. Why is it that the Prime Minister is always the last guy to know what's going on in his own government? some good news on the vaccine front because by now you know we've got the approval of Johnson Johnson. They call this one the uh, game changer with one shot vaccine. And Pfizer's going to send a couple of million extra doses early. And uh, I mean we're still weeks if not months from arriving but they will arrive at some point. And um, if you're wondering what happens in Ontario, General Hillier today or retired General Hillier announcing that his goal is to get 9 million of us vaccinated by July. And then you've got to read the fine print on this. Because we're only talking one shot. So if, you know, your version of being vaccinated means getting one shot, then okay, you're vaccinated. But, you know, that's what happens when desperate times call for desperate measures. The change in needle interval to up to four months is that seismic shift. And having four months or up to four months between needles means we can significantly increase the program and get a level of protection to the people of Ontario that we want to get much sooner in much greater numbers. So there you go. There is a four-month lag now between shots for Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. Uh, then I was reading in the Montreal Gazette today that Pfizer says they're refusing to sign off on this. Uh, they're going to refuse to sign off on any province that spreads out its shots beyond the 21 days. No other country's doing this, by the way. But I guess, you know, when your talking point says you're going to get everyone vaccinated by September and the rest of the world is racing ahead of you, then you do what you have to do and you just make up your own rules. All right. And we're going to go through the vaccine news because there is quite a bit of it today. And um, it comes on the same day that we learn Toronto and Peel go into the gray zone starting Monday and we get to end these stay at home rules. I mean, it's not much. It'll barely, uh, I think, make a big difference, certainly, uh, for big business or small business in uh, the GTA in Toronto, but at least the retailers can hopefully get a bit of a break and start getting people into their stores. And, you know, the vaccine news and all this reopening and stuff, it's desperately needed for Trudeau because Canadians are not happy. Nada. Look at the new polling that uh, reveals 57% of Canadians think he's done a lousy job on the vaccine rollout, and that is a pretty big hit for him. And so he needs the good news. It also conveniently comes on the same day, um, you know, where he comes and faces the media. This also happened last week, by the way, with the approval of AstraZeneca. I mean, somehow he just manages to get uh, vaccine good news when a scandal's brewing, you know. So maybe we will get everyone vaccinated because uh, we have lots of scandals. We can look at it that way. But the headline Trudeau is likely trying to dodge 
is, you know, what he knew and when about retired General Vance and these allegations of sexual misconduct against his former top soldier. And the Globe and Mail had a pretty big headline today that not only did Harjit Sajjan, the Minister of Defence, know about these allegations back in 2018, but one of the top advisors in the Prime Minister's office knew uh, back in 2018. And yet apparently no one bothered to tell the most feminist Prime Minister ever, and not even when the Trudeau government was renewing Vance's contract. Uh, had you been aware of the allegations against him, would you have still extended former Jonathan, uh, former CDS uh, Jonathan Vance's term? And should your minister or your staff have told you about these allegations when you were considering extending his term? I'm, I'm not going to uh, engage in hypotheticals. What I will say is that there is a strong and serious and rigorous investigation underway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's hide behind that, okay? What a load of hooey. Because a former military ombudsman, a guy named Gary Walburn, he testified this week uh, at a committee. And that's where he said that when he told Minister Sajin about the allegations, he also offered evidence. And when he went to reach into his pocket to give it to him, apparently Mr. Uh, Sajin pushed back from the table and said, Nope, don't want to see it. Can't see it. Don't want to see it. Eh. Which is probably what the alleged victim said. But, of course, no one in charge was listening. And, you know, willful blindness is great for a politician because Trudeau can just kind of have, like, plausible deniability. And I, well, I didn't know. No one told me. And he's probably counting on it to get out of this mess. Because, you know, while his government talks a very good game on believing and respecting women and no-tolerance policy... Somehow he always seems to see it differently or actually not at all in this case. And this is not going away. There are going to be more stories about this because there are more women, even men now apparently, coming forward about treatment within the military. And so we're going to talk to Mercedes Stevenson about this because she broke the story and she says she's been flooded by people who have a story to tell. And look, you cannot claim to be no tolerance and then have all of these examples, you know, including his own behavior, which he didn't have a no-tolerance policy on because he, he experienced it differently. And he was asked, you know, is Harjit Sajjan going to be, you know, resigning? No, no, of course not. Well, excuse me. I don't know how the Minister of Defense can keep his job with any credibility or have any credibility within the military given he knew these allegations three years ago, and yet they still extended General Vance's uh, contract. It, it, none of it adds up. But again, it's this double talk of uh, say one thing and do another. So we will talk to Mercedes uh, Stevenson about her thoughts on this, because she is the one who broke the story, and it has been now growing. And it's not going away. It's kind of like SNC. Just the more we hear, the worse it looks. But we'll get another vaccine announcement out of it. I'm sure of it. <laughs> so that's the good news. Uh, Walter Gretzky passing away. Uh, a very sad headline. Uh, he, of course, is known as the best hockey dad out there. And he was a lovely, lovely man. I met him a few years ago, and um, I kind of stood back and, and watched. You know, everyone in the room it was all about Walter Gretzky. And I think uh, everyone's kind of got a connection or a story to tell about him. But I think one of the more important stories is his generosity. 
He did a ton of charity work, just a ton of charity work. He was nonstop with that kind of stuff, all sorts of charity work, all sorts of working within the community. He was such a simple guy, um, did not buy into the fame, but certainly uh, was very generous and just completely blue-collar normal. You're listening to Global News Radio. For the past 30 years, from my very first days uh, as uh, uh, part of the McGill uh, Student Society Sexual Assault Center, uh, I have always taken extremely seriously our collective responsibility to ensure safe work and study environments and to fight against sexual harassment and assault. It is something that I have never shied away from, indeed, uh, as leader of the Liberal Party, have not hesitated to take uh, swift and necessary action on uh, responding to such allegations. Uh, you know, it's not exactly true what the Prime Minister says, because uh, Minister Sajan and the Prime Minister's office, as reported now, apparently knew in 2018 about these allegations of sexual misconduct, and yet still re-signed General Vance's contract and extended it. So the Prime Minister seems to be doubling down that the only way he learned about this particular issue was through global news that broke the story, which means he's either lying or he has absolutely no control or is not being told what's going on in his office. Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief and, of course, host of the West Block, also the reporter journalist who broke this uh, big story, joining us now. Um, so is it possible, uh, Mercedes, that the prime minister would not know something this serious? You know, there's a sort of concept of plausible deniability in politics. Mm -hmm. um, and there's certain yeah. things that deliberately... Uh, sometimes staff or ministers will not tell a prime minister. Uh, and, it, uh, you know, he says he didn't know. He said in, in his press conference today he learned this from Global's investigative reporting. Uh, he's very specific about that. And it, it is possible he didn't know. Um, when you think back to the Duffy scandal and the $90,000 check from Nigel Wright, Stephen Harper has always maintained that he did not know his chief of staff did that. Sometimes staff mm -hmm. don't tell somebody something. Uh, the question is, should they have? Should at some point either the minister or his staff have said something to Justin Trudeau when they made the decision to extend John Vance's term? Because he is Canada's longest-serving chief of the defense staff. Uh, he served right. two years longer than normal. So if, if you're starting to see that extension, you know, is that the time when maybe you have to say, look, there were some concerns brought up. We were never really able to get anywhere. But if we're looking at extending this guy, maybe we should scratch around a bit and see if there's something to this. Uh, and it, it seems like, according to what the prime minister is saying, nobody ever told him that at the time. Yeah, which, you know, OK, but but there was some pretty damning, um, you know, testimony that came out during the week. Uh, you know, the former ombudsman, uh, Gary Wolburn, had said he went to Mr. Singh. He said, here, I can give you evidence. And apparently Mr. Mr. S uh, Harjit Sajjan said, uh, yeah, no, and then pushed away and didn't want it. Yet he's telling us that he also pushed it up the chain of command. So how is it that the minister is not going to resign or be asked to resign? Because the prime minister still stands behind, you know, Harjit uh, Sajjan. And, and I don't understand how he could possibly keep this minister in place if he had access to evidence and, and still resigned General Vance. So Sajid never actually looked at the evidence. There's a question of whether he should have. Um, 
The <laughs> government maintains, and he maintains, that looking at that evidence was not his place because he's not the investigative authority, and he did pass it on to the Privy Council Office, which we know is true. Um, Privy Council Office looked into it. Um, they won't tell us how they decided there was nothing more to be done. But we do know there was a conversation then. So he did pass it on through the appropriate system. It's a question of, is that enough if you're the minister? Is it enough to mm. pass that on? Or should he have said something to John Vance? Should he have said something to the prime minister? Should he have called a board of inquiry? All things that he has the power to do. The liberals say that this would have tainted the process politically. But this is also a government that says, you know, we won't look the other way when allegations are brought forward. Right. So, this, you know, it's a bit of a contradiction here that... Um, the person who has ministerial responsibility on this file, yes, called the appropriate authorities, uh, but, you know, do, do you do that and nothing else? Uh, he was also a police officer. He was also a military officer. You know, he had a lot of yeah. different hats in his life when he heard these allegations. Um, and while it was reported, yes, to the appropriate authorities, I think the question here is with a government that, that portrays himself as feminist, is that enough to say, oh, well, yeah. you know, we sent emails, we told people to do stuff, um, you know, nothing else happened, didn't know about it. Um, you know, should should you have looked harder? Um, and those are questions, you know, that, that are accountability questions that I think will come out of all of this. But another thing that's coming out of all of this is if he did follow the proper process and no one really looked into this, um, is that process actually working? Or does there need to be another process? Does that say something about why women aren't coming forward. Uh, and, you know, I would say, in fairness to the minister, when the ombudsman came to him, he did say, you know, I this, this person does not want this investigated. And by the way, I verified this. The, the, the woman behind this did not want a formal investigation. They just wanted to find out what the options were. But that's also where what the minister is saying is falling apart. He wasn't being asked to open an investigation. He was being asked mm -hmm. for advice by the ombudsman, who he then never talked to again. Um, right. So, you know, what about the responsibility to that woman to say you know, here are your options, because maybe at that point she would have decided to come forward. But she wanted to know what her options were right. before she proceeded, and that opportunity wasn't offered. Yeah, it's pretty hard to call yourself a feminist government and a no tolerance, um, a, you know, for this kind of stuff and then turn the other cheek, uh, you know. And so there is a there's a missing link here. And I assume you've got more coming out. We continue to hear from women um, and men, too about things that have happened to them while they were in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, so, yeah, I think that I, it is safe to say there is more to come on this story. Um, this was not a one-off scenario with one person. So, and, and by the way, John Vance has denied all of these allegations, but they're looking not only at John Vance, um, and I think this just keeps getting bigger and bigger in terms of, of what needs to be done. And there's now questions about whether it's time to have, like, an Inspector General's office. The U.S. has one. Australia has yeah. one. It's civilian oversight, basically, and watchdog. Because in our system, there's a military ombudsman, but he reports to the Minister of National Defense. So that's not very independent. Um, and, you know, there's some people who are saying maybe this should be a public inquiry. Maybe this is yeah. broad enough and significant enough that we really we need more than just another report that says what the Deschamps report did. Do we need uh, a more public accounting? And I think that's something that um, members of Parliament of all parties are still kind of struggling with what to do with this. The other big issue, of course, is the, um, well, there's a whole bunch of big issues, but the other one you're going to be visiting is the um, fallout from the vote uh, from MPs uh, labeling um, China's persecution of Uyghurs, uh, Muslims as genocide. And, and of course, China has pushed back. They're denying this. They're kind of veiled threats in that. But you actually are going to be speaking with someone who did give evidence in favor of this labeling of genocide, uh, which 
for for him to speak publicly is a pretty brave thing to do. Yeah, so he is uh, Mehmet Toti. Um, he is a Canadian Uyghur. Uh, he he lives here. He he left his family in China 31 years ago. Um, he has not heard from his mother. He believes she's in one of the forced labor camps. Um, he says, you know, if there's nothing wrong, if they're doing nothing wrong, why can't I pick up the phone and talk to my parents or my family? Why can't I find out if they're okay? Um, and before he was going to testify, he says he received a direct message, anonymous direct message on Twitter saying, your mother is effing dead. Wow. Um, so he says this is not uncommon for uh Canadian Uyghurs, that there is intimidation going on. He alleges that the Chinese Politburo and security establishment is intimidating uh, Uyghurs who are in Canada, that if they speak out, something will happen to their family members. Um, so obviously that's, that's very concerning. And he also raises some interesting issues around what Canada can do. Uh, I didn't know that 42%, I think it is, of the world's ketchup supply comes from Xinjiang province, which is where this is yeah, happening. Yeah, I would so he says, you know, the Canadian government can do something about cotton, solar panels. Uh, if you have a, a smartphone, there is a very good chance that a significant amount of the components came from this, and there's a risk that it was from Uyghur forced labor. So mm-hmm. he's saying, you know, the government could put more into place to cause companies to look at where are you getting your supplies from. Is there a chance forced labor was used in the cotton, in the components of your phone, in your catch-up? Um, and also, interestingly, he told me that Canada is the fifth largest investor in that region. There's a lot of Canadian Jeez. companies operating there. Um, so there's certainly things that Canada could do that would actually have uh, an impact to demonstrate that, that what um, the Canadian government, or Canadian parliament rather, says is happening there, a genocide is wrong, um, and to reject investment or goods from that area. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing that Canadians very much would support in, uh, you know, sending a message with their wallets. You know, if China's going to hurt us, we can hurt them back. All right, sounds like a very busy show, and uh, we'll look forward to that. Mercedes, always appreciate your time. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, host of uh, the West Block, which, of course, runs on our station Sunday morning, 7 a.m., Global News Radio 640, and then, of course, on our TV property starting at 11 in the morning on Sunday. So that's a big show, lots of information coming out of that. Here on Point, I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. So Mark and Craig Kielberger will not be testifying before committees on Monday. They were scheduled to testify for a second time March 8th, but uh, their lawyers have now just said... Yeah, they won't be attending, even if they're subpoenaed. And this is after Charlie Angus of the NDP requested that the RCMP and CRA investigate allegations that had been raised last week after a former donor, uh, U.S. television journalist Reed Cowan, who we uh, played significant part of his interviews on the show, alleged that the plaque on a school he had fundraised for in Kenya uh, in his son's name had been replaced with a plaque in the name of another donor. And he laid out his complaints in this 17-minute-long 17 video. And he basically accused the charity of fraud. And so the Kielbergers are now saying, yeah, we're not appearing at this partisan committee, which begs the question, who the heck do the Kielbergers think they are? Michael Barrett is the is a conservative MP, also the ethics critic on this file, and you have been covering many, many of these hearings, if not all of them. Uh, what's your reaction to this? Well, I think that Canadians are rightly... More con- becoming more concerned with the mounting allegations, uh, uh, you know, uh, facing the the We organization, it's really, it's really disturbing that we have uh, these these two individuals in the Kielbergers who are refusing to recognize the legitimacy of Canada's Parliament. And 
And it's worth noting that I often see them wearing uh, pins as recipients of the Order of Canada, each of them. Mm. And, uh, mm. and, and here they are saying that it doesn't matter if a committee invites them. Uh, and it doesn't matter if a committee bends over backwards for months to, uh, to meet the scheduling needs of these gentlemen, as we have, having requested the meeting that was supposed to happen this coming Monday, we uh, initiated the process of working with them to get them to appear um, late last year. And this was the date that they had selected. And now we're hearing that uh, through their lawyer, that um, even if a summons were to be issued, uh, that um, they're saying that they would not appear. And um, I, I hope that that is, um, that's not a, uh, you know, a, a, a genuine sentiment that they have, because um, I, I really think that when we have an issue of an organization who was asked to administer a half billion dollar contract on behalf of the federal government of Canada and is now um, mired in the types of allegations that we've heard about at committee and read about in, uh, across various media and, and heard about uh, on your show, uh, I think that Canadians are entitled to answers. Their donors are entitled to answers. Well, frankly, there are more questions than ever now. I mean, uh, for those of you who did hear Reed Cowan's allegations, which were laid out um, meticulously, and he has the receipts and all the documentation to show for it. So it was pretty compelling, but it was some of the allegations were quite stunning, as you well know, Mr. Barrett. Uh, so there's even more questions about this. But, I mean, do they have the right to just not show up? I mean, is that how it works? I, I don't think that's how – they're not above the law. No, certainly not. And uh, it's really interesting that um, the law clerk has laid out what the um, the precedence is for um, for enforcing a summons. And the reason that th- that precedence is so old, in some cases more than a hundred years old, because people come to committee when they're invited, when they're asked yeah. to come. Rarely are summons issued, and when they are. Uh, folks comply. Now, of course, uh, Parliament has, because we uh, are a legitimate body uh, and the, the powers that Parliament has um, has have been inherited, um, we we have a, a number of means at our disposal to, to compel people to appear, much like a court could. And so mm-hmm. everything from monetary penalties to, uh, to detention. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really, it's really hard for me to believe that um, that these two individuals who have asked so much of Canadians, uh, when all Canadians are asking for is some accountability, uh, that, that they would just simply ignore the legitimacy of, of Canada's parliament. And this isn't, um, you know, this, this isn't, they're not unique in that they've been invited. They are only unique in that they, they are refusing to appear. And so we'll give them the opportunity. We'll, we'll have a, a discussion at committee on Monday with respect to the summons and, and timeline. And uh, you know what, we'll, we'll give them time to, and we will appear to the, uh, appeal to their better angels um, because uh, they're certainly not above the law. And, um, and they, you know, one of the reasons they said they're not appearing, uh, Alex, is because there's you know, other investigations. Well, um, it would be interesting to hear from them that, that they're being investigated by the RCMP or by the Canada Revenue Agency, or by the IRS, or, or the FBI, mm-hmm. but I don't know that to be true. So um, perhaps if they want to um, issue another public declaration detailing all of the investigations that you know that they they, they reference, um, well maybe maybe committee would um, would offer some 
uh, some patience in reply. But in the absence of that, uh, they must appear. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how it works in the United States. I mean, Reed Cowan openly uh, asked for the IRS to investigate, and he also all called on the RCMP uh, to investigate. And there's certainly a number of donors who are now speaking out out of concern as to, you know, where their money might have gone. And so th- there is legitimate concern regarding millions and millions of dollars. Um, you know, and if those I's can be dotted and T's can be crossed, then fine, so be it. But uh, what is the obligation, I don't know if you know this, of the RCMP? I mean, certainly Charlie Angus called on, on an investigation to start, but w- what, you know, obligation does the RCMP uh, have to, to make that um, uh, public or for them to actually be called in to uh, investigate if someone legitimately comes forward to say, look, we want this looked into? Well, anytime a complaint is raised with the RCMP, um, they're going to take a look at uh, at the complaint and uh, determine if it has merit and um, and then you know go f- make their way through their through their uh, their decision matrix on uh, on the the reasonable prospect of of being able to lay a charge and uh, then the crown would advise on if there's a reasonable prospect of conviction um, at this point I understand uh, again through media that the RCMP has acknowledged that they are aware of um, of complaints. Um, but at this point, um, they they haven't they haven't said that there's an investigation. So I think it depends on the um, on the substance of what's been presented to them, and uh, and certainly uh, you know uh, Mr. Angus from the NDP has has formally sent a a letter to them. Uh, you know Mr. Cowan had had made very public uh, a very public request for them to appear. And just while we're mentioning Mr. Cowan, I, I do want to just just quickly say it's very important that the reason Mr. Cowan appeared was because of his son, Wesley Cowan, and because of yeah. Wesley's smiles. That was, the, that was the charity that he raised for his, for his little boy that he tragically lost in an accident, and he, uh, and he wanted to do good here, and he feels like um, that, that in spite of his attempts to do good, that wrong has been done, and wrong has been done in his son's name. And so I just wanted to mention his son's name because, um, because the, you know, certainly no... Uh, you know, the, the situation that, that Mr. Cowan finds himself in, that these other individuals that are coming forward find themselves in. Uh, you know, I read today about a, about a woman who, um, instead of buying a tombstone, a uh, headstone for her husband, uh, yeah. uh, wanted to purchase a school in, in you know, uh, raise funds for a school in Kenya instead. So, my goodness, if, if, if the uh, gentleman Kielberger don't believe that they, they, there should be an accounting for that, uh, to their donors and to Canadians, um, particularly when Canadians were going to be asked to entrust a half a billion dollars to them. Um, and after we've had them in, you know, as guests in our schools, in our communities, uh, I, you know, it's, I'm really at, I guess I'd be at a loss for words to describe, um, you know, what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, that means I've completely lost touch with reality because the allegation from Mr. Cowan is that, you know, he feels that Wesley, his child was exploited, um, you know, for, for, for gain, uh, for the charity. And that's his allegation. But, uh, certainly, well, many say, well, the story's done. I think I, I personally, there are a lot more questions that need answering. So we'll see what comes out of this in the next, uh, few weeks, but certainly a lot of, a lot of eyebrow raising. Um, appreciate your time on this. Thanks so much. Take care. That is uh, MP Michael Barrett, who is uh, the ethics critic, and so we'll see what happens on Monday on this. But there's no, qu- there's no question there's more to investigate on this. No question. You know, like so on anyone who thinks the story's gone, you only need look at that 17-minute um, 
um, statement that Mr. Reed Cowan put out, and it's quite stunning. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. You know, the clock is ticking uh, to the cancellation of Enbridge Line 5. This does not get the attention it deserves because this is a crucial, crucial pipeline that transports about 540,000 barrels of natural gas and oil every day. And I don't care your position on pipelines. We cannot survive without it. I mean, Pearson Airport can't operate it without it. We would have major fuel shortages, loss of energy here in Ontario as well as Quebec, not to mention the cost of thousands of jobs. I mean, this has been a problem-free pipeline for decades. And uh, earlier this week, the Trudeau government stated it will not let Michigan shut this down. And Seamus O'Regan told a committee that they're going to fight on diplomatic grounds and are preparing to invoke whatever measure, measures needed in order to make sure that the governor does not shut down this line. Uh, they say it's a non-negotiable. My question is, what tools do we have to actually stop this? Let's ask someone who would know. Lawrence Herman is a Toronto-based international trade lawyer with Herman & Associates. He joins us now. Good to have you. Well, nice to be here. This is one of those issues that is so unsexy, people would probably shrug their shoulders. But it, this this pipeline, without it, we are pretty much in the dark. It is a very important pipeline for us. We depend on it. It has major, major economic implications for Canada if uh, the transit through that pipeline of hydrocarbons was shut off. So this is a big issue. And I don't think yeah. Canadians should... Uh, should forget that this is a big issue. Yeah, I mean, it's very cold right now, and uh, if we don't have the heat uh, or something to fill up our car, they'll certainly notice. Now, this is Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitner, and she's trying to shut this thing down by May, and it's had no issues. We've had a perfect partnership for decades, um, and Bridge has been very responsible to my knowledge. So a lot of this, I think, is kind of playing into the climate issue, the politics of it, and she's worried that something might happen. So the question then comes, can she do this, given I think it is a direct threat to our energy? energy security? Well, I think it's important to uh, recognize that we have a treaty with the United States, a binding legal treaty that mm -hmm. is uh, designed to ensure uninterrupted, uninterrupted hydrocarbon transmission through pipelines. This is a okay. transit pipeline governed by the treaty. It's a solemn agreement between, not between Michigan and Canada, but between Washington and Ottawa. It is a bilateral treaty, and I think the Canadian government should make the point at the highest levels that this is a solemn treaty and that we uh, not only depend on the application of the treaty, but the U.S. as a country is legally bound to respect the terms of that treaty. It was designed to ensure against this kind of, uh, I think, arbitrary uh, interference in transit by a state uh, government or by a state agency. This is a treaty between two governments, two countries, mm -hmm. and I think that Canada should press the United States to do whatever Mr. Biden needs to do to get the governor of Michigan to back off. And yeah, I mean, it might... Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I was going to say, you know, it might play well to her base, but, you know, it actually hurts a lot of people also in the United States if this thing gets canceled. But it will be a, a real test of the relationship between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Biden. Absolutely. You know, two weeks ago, the president and the prime minister 
issued a document uh, renewing the partnership between the two countries. This is a true test of the value of that partnership. And it's not based on rhetoric or vague promises or general declarations. It's based on a treaty approved by the U.S. Senate. By the way, Mr. Biden voted in favor of approval mm-hmm. of this treaty when he was in the Senate in 1977. It's a... Uh, uh, a, a treaty, and it goes beyond words. Now, one, one thing I should say is that it probably isn't going to get us anywhere to argue that we're going to take the U.S. to some kind of arbitration proceeding if they don't comply with the terms of the treaty. But I think that as a general approach, uh, Mr. Trudeau should make it clear that we expect the United States to live up to the terms of the treaty, and we will do whatever we can, or the government of Canada will do whatever uh, it can, to work out something between, let's say, the state of Michigan and the uh, the company Enbridge to make sure that the terms of the treaty are lived up to and that, the, uh, that Line 5 uh, can continue to operate and that Enbridge can get through the necessary permits to reinforce uh, line five, as it wishes to do. Yeah, the concern, however, always is because these issues now are so highly politicized. You know, you'll get environmental groups involved, you'll get all sorts of activist groups involved, where they might not understand the bigger issue at play, um, which is this would severely impact the 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 um, you know not just our lives, but it, it has such a consequence if it actually gets, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. wrapped up in politics that, that this, this one, you know, where people say, well, who cares? Well, I think we'd all care. Absolutely. And, you know, as I said, uh, the uh, president and the prime minister met and they said that the relationship is uh, a strong one, that uh, the Biden administration committed itself to renewing its uh, uh, alliances and partnership arrangements with Canada. This is a true test, and it's a test that is so mightily important mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, uh, Canada because of the economic consequences, as you rightly pointed out. This is so different from uh, from Keystone XL. Keystone XL was a project. It wasn't an active, ongoing, yeah. uh, operating pipeline. This is a pipeline. And a treaty was concluded between the two governments to ensure that this pipeline and other pipelines that are that 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 are transit pipelines can continue to operate. And if something comes up that requires a temporary reduction of transit or a temporary halting of transit to repair the pipeline or to improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, improve the pipeline, that may be justified, but to put a stop uh, to the pipeline's operations is contrary to the treaty and the good faith obligations. By the way, I'm an international lawyer, and treaties are required to be observed in good faith by the parties. That's a rule of international law, and I don't think it it, it's good enough for uh, Washington to say, well, this is up to uh, Michigan to sort, uh, to, to uh, act on. It is a, uh, a treaty between the, the two countries and the governments concerned, the national governments, the federal governments are the ones who have to sort this out. So how do you see, you know, given your experience and, and given the, the um, kind of political theater we've seen over the last decade when it comes to pipeline issues, how do you see this one then playing out 
Um, you know, do you get the sense that the, the Michigan governor is going to back off or, or do you get the sense that this will kind of come to a head? Because May's not that far off. You're right. I, I'm not sure what the politics are in the state of Michigan, whether the governor can, as you say, back off. But I think that it is important. Two things are important. First of all, Washington, the, the, the U.S. federal government, the executive branch at the highest levels, has to get involved and mm-hmm. make it clear to Michigan that this is uh, something that interferes with uh, an obligation that the United States has entered into with Canada, number one. Number two, I think that it will be important for Enbridge to demonstrate the bona fides of its plans, all of the technical aspects to ensure that the pipeline that has been uh, free of any problems will continue to be free of any environmental concerns. So the technical issues and the uh, ingredients of the management of the pipeline can be addressed between um, Enbridge, which has all the facts and is the proponent of the project and operating the pipeline, and the governor and government of Michigan. I think that's important, but overriding all of that, I'm repeating what I said earlier, mm-hmm. is, the fact, is the fact that the U.S. government, Washington, the executive branch, uh, has to take this on and uh, take it on on the basis that uh, there is a, a, a treaty, a binding legal obligation on the part of the United States to ensure that transit continues on an under, uninterrupted basis. Yeah, I mean, it goes it goes beyond really Enbridge. I mean, we're talking about energy security for for two of the biggest provinces. Ab- and uh, boy, ab- that's yeah. absolutely correct. Now, you know, if there were demonstrated environmental problems, if there were technical deficiencies, if there was a major spill, uh, a serious threat of environmental damage, that may be another thing. But that's not what's being alleged by uh, the mm-hmm. governor of Michigan. The governor of Michigan is just uh, saying that there is a risk possibly in the future of some environmental consequence. But that's not good enough. And that isn't compliant with the treaty. The treaty yeah. allows reduction of transmission in order to correct technical problems. But there aren't any. And uh, risk factors are there, they always are, but just alleging the potential risks um, is not a good enough reason to breach these obligations uh, that the United States has as a country to Canada. And again, you made the, the, the point, and it's, a, it's the vital point, that this concerns um, the Canadian economy in a major way and would affect us seriously in a major way. And so, you know, the U.S. government, uh, the president has to understand what's at stake for Canada in this regard. I mean, if the, yeah. if, if, if the situation were reversed and it was a pipeline flowing through Canada and a provincial government were taking steps to interfere with that pipeline's operations to the major detriment of the United States, how do you think Canada, you know, the government of Canada would act? Of course, the government of Canada would be responsive to its treaty obligations, and we should expect no less from the United States government. Well, stay tuned. No question. Uh, people don't generally notice until they're directly impacted. And uh, 
Yeah, like I said, when you can't turn your lights on, you'll realize how important this is. Lawrence, I appreciate your time and insight into this. We'll keep uh, watching this closely. Indeed. Thank you. That is Lawrence Herman uh, joining us again. It's not the sexiest issue, but this one is so critical to our well-being that uh, you got to pay attention because the date is drawing close. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.